You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm David Landy, an orthopedic surgeon at the University of Kentucky, and I'm lucky enough to be hosting the podcast tonight with a veteran host, Dr. Mildred. Of note, I have no conflicts of interest with any of the studies or devices that may be discussed, though I'm in the same practice as one of our guests, Dr. Duncan, and collaborate with him on some research. I, just of note, I take uh, the phrase veteran host to be a little bit of an ageist microaggression, Dr. Landy. I think I resent that a little bit. I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics. I specialize in fixing joints that have undergone a, quote, rapid unscheduled disassembly. Uh, I have no conflicts of interest with uh, any of the studies or devices that may be discussed, although Landy does owe me a beer at Spring Aucus next week. All right, fair enough. Now we'd like to introduce our guests who were lucky enough to have join us this evening to discuss the recent publications on coding around hip and knee arthroplasty surgeries and how this is important to our patients, our field, and to us. First from Loyola University in Maywood, Illinois, we have Dr. Nicholas Brown. Dr. Brown is originally from Iowa and went to college at the University of Iowa. He then completed medical school at Columbia University in New York and a research year in arthroplasty at Rush followed by an orthopedic surgery residency at Rush and arthroplasty fellowship at the Anderson Clinic. He leads an active research program at Loyola and has published a number of great articles recently, which is what brings him here with us tonight. Thanks for having me. We're also incredibly lucky to have Dr. Stephen Duncan from the University of Kentucky. Dr. Duncan is originally from Wisconsin and went to college at Vanderbilt University. He completed medical school at Vanderbilt, followed by an orthopedic surgery residency at the University of Kentucky, arthroplasty fellowship with hip preservation focus at Washington University. He's active in research and industry work. He serves on the AUKUS Research Committee and is also the arthroplasty fellowship director at Kentucky. Thank you both so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. So this first paper we're going to discuss was something that is very near and dear to my heart. This week, I had four total knees that all had some sort of post-traumatic. One had a flap, one had a popliteal artery graft. These are not cookie cutter knees. We all know this. So Dr. Brown, we're going to talk about your paper. It was published in JBJS, just a fantastic paper. It's one of those papers that actually does have implications for us total joint surgeons on things we do almost every day in the OR, and that is code cases. We all know that these cases are qualitatively more difficult. This study was one of the first studies that actually quantified this fact. So this was an NSQIP database retrospective review between the years of 2005, 2020. We should get into a little bit later why those years are important and maybe some of the changes that would show up in a paper that was done over the maybe the last 10 years, what they did is they took the CPT code 27447 and then created a new kind of CPT code that was a combination of when the CPT code 27447 plus 20680 was used. And they called this the conversion TKA. Obviously, this didn't capture all of the conversions to TKA if the patients had a hardware that wasn't removed, etc. Patients were excluded for emergency surgery operation within 30 days open wounds, pre-op sepsis, time shorter than 30 minutes or longer than 500 minutes. It's a little bit interesting that, I mean, there were plenty of them, of surgeons that coded a 27447 on somebody that was septic or that had an open wound, but maybe we can get into that later. 
Or the time that was shorter than 30 minutes or time longer than 500 minutes. Good heavens. Stats were done. I'll be perfectly honest. I didn't follow the stats. Landy is going to have to tell me about the stats because they seem to be good, but they use some words like propensity matched and stuff that goes over my head. So the results, 1,600 patients were identified that underwent this conversion TKA procedure. Again, 27447 plus 20680 and 391,000 total needs met criteria for just the, the standard total needs. They saw from a reimbursement standpoint, the work RVUs were calculated to be uh, 21.18 for total needs, 21.24 for conversion TKAs. So the reimbursement was actually higher for the conversion TKAs, but it was not statistically significant. And due to the increased surgical time associated with this, there was actually a decrease in reimbursement per minute with the associated decrease in RVU value. Surgical time increased by 27% for these conversion TKAs. Post-op complications were significantly higher with conversion TKAs, including transfusion infection, reoperation, readmission, wound uh, dehiscence. And so one of the conclusions, it was so well stated, it was actually in the beginning of the paper, the conclusion was current physician, and this is quote, current physician compensation does not accurately encompass the increased complexity and significantly increased time of these operations. Could not have said that better. First of all, what prompted the study? Was there a case where it was just like, you know what, this is bullcrap. I am going to code a 27447 and this is taking so much time. This is ridiculous. Something needs to be done. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I love doing those kind of cases. They're fun cases, but certainly they do take longer. Yeah, I think just being at a level one trauma center, gosh, I see and do a lot of these cases. And um, it's something I've been trying to look kind of like we talked about beforehand, something I've been trying to look at, you know, with our own internal data, but it's hard to identify these patients, right? Because you can't code for it generally. So the only way to do it is, I mean, not the only way, but one way to do it is just have some poor med student or resident look over 5,000 x-rays and note if there was some hardware in there, you know, at the time of surgery. So with the NISCOP, we thought this would be an easy way to do it, albeit with the limitations of a NISCOP and a large database study. Some of the things you kind of mentioned, you know, who codes this for sepsis? How could these cases be this long or this short? I mean, I think it's a lot of this is the nurses coding it in or some data entry person. So I think, you know, when you have hundreds of thousands of these, there's just some data entry errors, which is some of what you're capturing, which you don't necessarily say, but, um, but yeah, no, I just doing a lot of these prompted me, you know, realizing that, you know, I'm getting more complications, they're taking me longer, patients stay in the hospital longer, things like that. It just prompted us to, to take a closer look at that, especially because it hasn't been done. It's done for conversion hips, obviously, because there's a code and there's a lot of data on it, right? And if you look at the increased time and the reimbursement difference and stuff like that, it's fairly similar in terms of, you know, how much extra time a conversion hip takes in terms of what's been published. And you kind of talk about it in the paper a little bit. Would, would you mind kind of going over why surgeons shouldn't? I mean, why can't we just have a 22 modifier and that's it? I never code that. We never get anything for it. We never, they, it never, we seem to never get it. So it's, <laughs> and that's the answer to the question. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly the answer to the question. You know, I, when I started out, we, we talked about that and our coders we're basically like, you know, we can't get this. They're never paying for it. Even if you put that little blurb in your app. Now, maybe other people are having different um, experiences with that. But just for us and our coders and our institution, we just haven't not had good luck with that. In the paper, it kind of talks about, you know, the amount of appeals and the amount of time that it takes to actually get a questionable reimbursement for this is just not even worth it. And so that's why uh, kind of the conclusions of the paper, we need a separate code for these cases. Like that completely makes sense so that we can assign an RVU value to it. We can get compensated appropriately for this hard work that we're doing. Just out of curiosity, why did you pick work RVUs? Why not total RVUs? 
It's a good question. I think this is what we thought was most accurate in terms of, you know, what was getting billed and what was getting paid and just thought that would be a more accurate representation of it. But good question. If we were going to do the the same study over orthopedic surgery and especially joint replacement has changed significantly, you know, between 2005 and 2020, patients are staying less time in the hospital. We have new technology that we're utilizing. Do you think there would be a significant shift in maybe the findings of the study if it was done, say, over the last five years, as opposed to starting in 2005 to 2020? Yeah, you know, it's hard It's hard to say. I actually kind of thought about that because that's, again, we had actually talked about that too, because you can look at, NISCOPE even for five years has plenty of patients and potentially with patients staying shorter amounts of time. But I think the conversions are staying shorter amounts of time too. So we sort of thought that like, though, like this sort of maybe like quicker OR times and the shorter length of stay over that time would sort of even itself out, you know, between the two groups. So we ultimately said, you know what, let's just go with the larger pool of patients. Totally. I would also... Imagine increasing use of press fit technology would play a large difference. I'm personally more inclined to use cement in these conversion cases, which obviously they take longer. And so with more people using press fit on more likely primary cases, I would guess that would probably enter into surgical time, thus making a difference on reimbursement per minute and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Excellent point. And, and you'll touch a little bit about this on this in the paper, but you know, one of the other things to, to Mark's point that, that's changed over the last 15 years is this transition to ambulatory surgery centers. And so if you're only doing your surgeries at a hospital, adding on a case that may be of increased complexity and have increased resource utilization is pretty doable. But if you're at an ambulatory surgery center, all of a sudden it may be tough to fold this into your practice. I was just hoping you could comment a little bit on that. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, I wonder if I'm seeing more of these, if they're just getting more of them you know, punted to our institution. I mean, I think there's certainly something that I think certain centers and certain academic centers are seeing more our revisions, more infections. And I think for these types of cases, you know, there, when there's not that, that everyone's doing anything on a financial incentive, but when there's a definitely a financial disincentive, particularly for some private practices, they're trying to do it out of an ASC or things like that. Yeah, certainly. I think you're seeing these cases move to other areas. And more likely to use maybe a semi-constraint too. So more likely to use cement, more likely to use a semi-constraint. makes sense that more of these cases would be done in a hospital setting, potentially actually costing Medicare money or costing the payers money instead of where, you know, maybe paying slightly more for a CPT code and these patients can now be done in an ASC. If you were, if you were thinking about like, you know, this more globally, you, you talk about it a little bit in the paper, but it's tough to quantify, but the amount of increased work in the perioperative period for these patients, because maybe it's an extra 27% of time in the OR, but I feel like it's a hundred percent more in the clinic. Oh, certainly. Certainly. I think Pre to post, I mean, it's both, you know, I mean, even figuring out what plates in there, what screwdriver you're going to need, or what if you're removing a nail or you need some sort of navigation or PSI or robotics or something to work around a nail. Certainly even post-operatively, there's more wound issues, there's more complications, there's more bleeding. They often need longer therapy, they get stiffer. I mean, it's certainly an excellent point. I mean, something you know, I've definitely noticed in my own practice as well. It, it certainly goes beyond intraoperative time. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you were going to create a definition for a conversion TKA CPT code, what would be in it? Because we know that hardware removal alone doesn't mean that the case is necessarily more complex or whatnot. So if we were going to go forward with this conversion TKA CPT code, how would you define it? Yeah, it's tough because I think the fear is so many people get knee scopes and you know you can code a conversion after a hip scope. And certainly a 
uh, total hip arthroplasty, particularly through the anterior approach, is a little tougher, you know, after hip scope. And it, it seems reasonable that there's more scar tissue. The approach takes a little longer and things like that. I think we're never going to get paid and probably rightfully shouldn't after like a simple knee scope. You know, maybe there's a slightly increased risk of infection or things like that, but they're not like substantially harder cases. So I think if there was some way of, I'd have to think about an eloquent way to word it, but you know, if there was a surgery where hardware was inserted sort of periarticularly or interarticularly, I think that would be a fair way of doing it. You know, sure. I know, you know, what is hardware is a, uh, a suture repair hardware or something like that. You know, do you have to specify the material? But I think something along those lines, you could come up with a, you know, reasonable, fair way of reimbursing it, coding it. And, you know, it is interesting. They've removed a uh, hip scope from the conversion code on the hip side, because I do a fair number of hip scopes and then convert them over. And my biller alerted me to know that I can no longer bill for the conversion after hip scope, even though it is a sometimes more challenging procedure if someone took out all of the anterior hip capsule. Yeah. I didn't know that had been removed. When did that change? About two years ago. Okay. It was bad email day when I got that one. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize <laughs> that. I don't see a ton of them though for the hip scopes, but good to know. But it does make complete sense that total knees would mirror what has taken place with the hip with the increased complexity that goes with the knee replacement done on a patient that has had surgery before, especially if they've had like an open ligamentous reconstruction. Those patients are scarred to high hell. Getting exposure, getting everything subluxed is more difficult. And so this is a wonderful study. And the next step is going to be to take some action with this and try and get this conversion TKA as part of the... Uh, the CPT nomenclature. I think another point that's sort of related to this, you know, you talked a lot about the increased complications in the paper really nicely. You know, you guys did a nice job of matching the groups and then you kind of clearly demonstrate there's a significantly clinically, not just physically, but clinically significant increase in the complications. And another advantage to getting this code is then when payers and other groups want to look back at quality we're not getting yeah. a second hit against us where we didn't get reimbursed appropriately. And then we're being told that we're bad surgeons. And currently, it would be really tough in a big data sense to try to look back and tease that out. Certainly. I mean, almost everything we saw was double, you know, blood transfusions, readmissions, complications, reoperations. I mean, across the board, it was almost double. It's a lot. And, you know, one thing that's probably tough to capture is the number of extra phone calls to our nurses in the clinic which is always, as I had clinic today, and, you know, my nurse will quick grab me, hey, what do you think about this? You know, that's something that isn't captured in NISQIP, which would be a great study to see how many touches it takes for these patients compared to the standard one. Exactly. I mean, I think to your guys' points, I think the other thing you're saying, the next thing, the next step is another CPT code or an amendment to the AMA or whoever does the CPT codes. But, you know, I think to that point, another thing is just more data. You know, we, part of the reason we did this is because there's not that much data on it. But I think you know, maybe that happened with conversion hip or just mounting data, data, data that shows that it's more. So I think encouraging more people to just sort of not copy, but do a similar type of study with other databases or in their own institutional database, I think would uh, bring more evidence to the table as well. Sounds like a great project for the health policy fellow for AUKUS. <laughs> <laughs> One last question then. So can you tell us a little bit about the team that kind of helped you do this project and everything like that? Was this a one-man show or did you have help? Yeah, certainly, certainly. I mean, the team was mostly Steve Denyer. He's a third year applying into joints this year. And we had talked about doing this again in our own sort of institutional database and just, you know, over the past few years had been working at it. And, 
you know, he's kind of the wizard with stats and methodology. And he's, he's actually married to someone who has a, she's a dermatologist, but she also has like an advanced degree in stats too. So the two of them are kind of the dream team for research. So this is really a lot of his work. All right. So people should be on the lookout for Dr. Dinier then. Absolutely. <laughs> and his statistically gifted wife. Yeah. You get a, you get a package deal there. <laughs> so moving on, let's talk about another article. This one is from uh, Dr. Duncan and his team, which was published in Arthroplasty Today in 2021 and discusses coding preservation surgery. The article is a great reference for thinking through coding of these procedures that are sort of less recognized than, say, total knee arthroplasty. Uh, we're not going to go through the individual procedure codes, as, as fun as that might be, but want to start by asking kind of how you obtain this knowledge. So, you know, you get back to the University of Kentucky, you're starting to see patients build a preservation practice and build it somewhere where it really hadn't existed before. You know, what's going on? Had you already been working with the coders before you started? Did you consult attendings from your fellowship? Did you go case by case? Just kind of describe how this played out for us. Yeah, so I'm kind of in the very, my, like very few people who actually do hip preservation as part of AUKUS. Uh, and that's part of why I did fellowship at WashU with uh, Dr. Closey. And so as I came back to the university, they're like, what codes are we like supposed to use for these cases? And so I met with the coders and I was getting like one RVU for PAO, which, you know, took four hours. I said, well, I mean, heck, that's like an injection in clinic. I mean, come on guys. <laughs> and so it probably took one good year of working with them, making sure the insurance uh, companies were then to reimburse us for kind of the time and effort. Because a lot of the hip preservation stuff, unfortunately, was unlisted at the time in terms of the code. It was the 27299. And unfortunately, there's still not tons of hip preservation codes. And so a lot of it's unlisted. You have to reference the shoulder CPT codes as reference codes to then get reimbursed for it. You have to make sure that you get approved for all the codes prior to the surgery, that you're not trying to do these appeals afterwards. So it was a, a little bit of a painstaking process for a good year or so until everybody was kind of on the right page. What kind of support or who did you have to engage at the institutional level to kind of make that happen? Was that something that the the chair of your department was helpful with? Or is that something where there was some kind of coding guru that sort of helped work through this? So it, it got into a lot of what I call my OCD-ness, which was reviewing the billings from the university. So it was like my two-week thing of uh, reviewing what they build for everything. And then over the course of that first year, making sure that they were billing everything appropriately. We would then meet with the billers on a kind of quarterly basis to make sure that they were doing things appropriately. And we met with the, with the administrative staff as well and my scheduler. So that in the future, all the right codes were being submitted. We'd get approval from the insurance company so that we didn't get denials then afterwards saying we weren't going to pay for X code on your hip scope. We're only then reimbursed for one of the codes. And so again, it took about a year after that, everything was kind of set in motion then, but it did take a lot of meetings to educate kind of everybody in the team. So, so in the article, and just now, you know, you talked about an insurance contracting agent with the institution. A lot of us remain insulated from this type of work, which is probably not a good thing, but we just do, you know, a couple of common surgeries where someone before us sort of contractually figured everything out. I was hoping you could just t talk a little bit about what the process is like of working with the insurance contracting agents and the insurance companies. Like, how does that work? Yeah, so once we submit the codes, let's just say it's a scope PAO uh, where you have your 29914 and 29916, which is labor repair and femoral osteochondroplasty, and then you have your unlisted codes. Oftentimes, prior to meeting with everybody, they would not put the codes together. They're like, why are you doing two surgeries? Like, 
who are the two different surgeons? And like, well, it's me. Or they'll only pay for like one of the procedures. I'm like, well, that doesn't work. And so we then met with the insurance, like contracting agent. We have like two dedicated to me that when I submit the codes with the scheduler, then it goes to the insurance company. Then the insurance company looks at the codes. And even to this day, there's still the pre-authorization process where they'll say, well, we're only then approve one of these codes, but okay. Unfortunately, it still requires a lot of this authorization stuff with the insurance companies, even now 10 years into practice and having done this, uh, you know, well over a couple thousand cases. Do you think this has led to any kind of changes in the way you view coding and the reimbursement and negotiations with insurance for primary hip and knee replacement, like more routine cases? I mean, I think the routine stuff's pretty straightforward as you start to get into some of these unlisted codes, like that I think you did a glute med repair and you're asking about how to code the glute med repair. Well, unfortunately, there is no code for glute med repair. So it's a, again, a 27299, which is unlisted hip and knee code. And then you have to reference the uh, shoulder codes for rotator cuff. Luckily, I had already gone through the painstaking process of getting all that submitted for you, David. So hopefully you got the RVU credit. But unfortunately, we all see this, right? There's these cases where we get in and we have to do something kind of what I call off the shelf or not normal, you know, whether it's a revision with capsular reconstruction, I've done mesh reconstruction on cases where there's just nothing left of the hip. And my coders go, what in the hell did you do on this case? And I go, well, you know, it's unlisted code, you know, we're going to come up with a reference code and you do have to work with them. But as long as you work with them, you will tend to get credit because it is a lot of work for this extra work that goes beyond kind of the norm. What is one of the biggest mistakes you think you made with coding early on when you were trying to get things set up? Maybe overcoding. And in large part, like if you're in private practice and you overcode, they may delay your payment. At the university, we get payments. I don't know when because we're RVU based, but the, in private practice, I know if you overcode stuff, it's going to hit the insurers for review and it may take longer to get reimbursed. So I think we're a little protected at the university, but the private practice guys, I can see where they may not venture out to do some of these unlisted codes just because they don't want to hit the scrutiny of saying, well, we're going to delay your payment because, I mean, they got to pay the bills and get the lights on. Or someone might use that word that no one wants to hear an audit. <laughs> That's right. Especially during tax time. Especially during tax time. So in the article, you briefly mentioned, you know, the reality that this type of work sort of crosses subspecialties, you know, sports and recon. Interestingly, Dr. Zacharias, you know, one of the co-authors who was a resident at the time is now in practice doing some of this hip preservation work, even though he completed a sports fellowship. Do you think having multiple subspecialties involved is good or bad from an advocacy and clarification perspective for the coding? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the more people you have maybe potentially trying to suggest to the RUC uh, through the AMA to try and get additional codes, it probably will hit the radar a little bit easier. But the problem is, is once it hits the radar, it may change your reimbursement, right? And so like PAO reimburses fairly well. If there all of a sudden becomes a code where it goes from unlisted to listed, we may not like that RVU amount. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, just like for some of the knee stuff. Is it a great idea to probably get more stuff in it, like for one-stage exchange? Probably so. But we just have to be prepared that if we don't like how the outcome ends up being, because you can never trust the AMA. I think that's probably the takeaway from this entire podcast. You can't trust the AMA. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the tagline for how we describe the podcast. 
I like it. Well, having been to the Ruck, it's a very interesting process. I don't know if you guys have ever been up there for some of the coding stuff. I was a health policy fellow, and uh, you're you're allowed to say a little bit, but you don't want to say too much because then you know it's kind of like being on trial or giving a deposition. You don't want to give too much because if you give too much, they may start looking at other codes and detracting from uh, some of the RVs that you're getting. That's kind of interesting. Do you mind talking about that experience of you know being at the Ruck? And uh, this kind of goes back to that conversion TKA. What would be the process of actually getting that as a new CPT code? It's a great question. So with the Ruck, it's at least when I was doing it, it was up in Chicago and all subspecialties are kind of on the board for the day. And at the time it was like revision hip. And the question is, should we change their views? And the short answer is no, because all of a sudden you start saying, well, headliner exchange is a revision, should we decrease the RVUs? My argument was no, but if you start opening Pandora's box to some of the reviews, we're gonna get hit with potential bigger problems. And it's not just for our specialty, but for all subspecialties. And as we've seen, you know, huge change in terms of the RVU target for clinic visits versus procedural codes. Some days you look at your clinic volume, you go, oh heck, this is a pretty good day compared to your OR day in terms of what you're getting for all the work that you're doing. The big thing I'd say for the hip preservation stuff and for folks who are doing arthroplasty and hip preservation, I mean, the reimbursement for hip preservation has drastically changed 10 years ago. And that's what I tell all folks who are, do our fellowship. I said, hip scopes, they're a fun operation. They're a big time investment. When I first started, I got better part of 60 RVUs per hip scope. And now it's down to 23. And so that time investment, and I shouldn't say you should make your decisions based on how long procedures take, but if you're then a, you know, fret about your day where you're doing one or two hip scopes, and you're getting 50 RVUs for two hip scopes versus you don't sweat at all and you do a bunch of total joints or you do the conversion cases. That's why I always tell people, you really got to enjoy what you're doing because at the end of the day, it's not about the reimbursement. Yeah, and I think the important thing there too is sometimes you can feel bad like mentioning the reimbursement, but it doesn't just affect you and your decision-making. If it affects other people in their decision-making, then that inadvertently may affect you in the type of practice you end up with if everyone around you has altered their practice. So it's not as simple as just, oh, this is what I think, or this is what I want. We exist in a much more complicated environment. I do got to say that having the word scope and PAO next to each other, I could not be more unhappy with. Those are like the two things that I despise most in life. And I try to do as little of either as possible. So just putting them together just sounds, makes me twitch a little bit. Well, the best part is I do it next to David because we operate next to each other on Fridays. And it's always, I should say, a race to see who gets done first, but uh, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Nice. All right. So usually we kind of end with sort of like a grab bag or a gauntlet type series of questions. So uh, we'll have you both answer these questions. So this question is for Dr. Duncan. Since we're talking about codes, there is a code for computer-assisted navigation with musculoskeletal procedures 20985. Do you use navigation for knees? And if so, when? I do use navigation. I use it on every case. And we we do use uh, robotics as well. So it's the same code, whether you use navigation or robotics. I do use it on every case. Some insurers will not reimburse for it. So it gets submitted preoperatively. So we do know who is eligible for us to use that advanced technology and who is not prior to the procedure. For those that get denied, we do then ask them if they are willing to pay the additional CPT code. And most will actually say that they're willing to pay the additional charge for that technology. Interesting. I had not actually thought about charging for that additional code. Is there anyone that you don't use navigation on? For knees, no. Currently, I don't use it on hips. Okay. 
Dr. Brown, how late is too late for a dare? It's a good question. I don't think there's a known answer to that. I mean, gosh, I think you just have to talk to the patient, you know, because there's some data saying, you know, one year versus over a year, traditionally six weeks or three months. I think it's a more nuanced answer that you have to take into account. The patient, their comorbidities, potentially the bug, potentially how long they've been showing symptoms. Okay, but follow-up question, you're doing a dare. What is your irrigation solution and or irrigation process? So I'll usually use nine liters, use the dilute betadine, use the acetic acid, I guess, because we can't use uh, trade names, then usually use a chlorhexidine as well. And then, you know, I don't reprep, but I do change gowns, change gloves, redrape and use. I keep the original drapes on, but sort of cover everything with new IABAN, new stockinette, new drape, new sure. instruments, everything. Dr. Duncan, I'll ask you the same thing. You're doing a dare. What is your irrigation technique? So I use the combination of the hydrogen peroxide as well as the betadine. We used the, in the past, the acetic acid combination that we actually part of their multicenter trial that actually looked pretty good. You know, the data from, I think, HSS looked at the different irrigation solution systems and the peroxide betadine combo worked just as well at a fraction of the cost. And then I, I caught the LeBron James where, you know, I tossed in as much uh, baby powder of antibiotics into the wound at the conclusion. So usually I don't always have a bug. So I usually put bank, tobra, and then a antifungal in there as well. Which antifungal are you putting in there for powdered antifungal? So I'm from Wisconsin originally. So hence, I got to go back to my Wisconsin heritage with Packer Gold. So I put amphotericin in because I just love seeing that yellow gold go into the room. Okay. And sorry, these are all powder that you're putting in or are these in bioabsorbable yeah. beads or how, all powder? Just putting it uh, in. I like all it. powder. You know, it's, I mean, most of the antibiotics stuff you look at, I mean, we need to kill it for about 24 hours and then uh, let whatever IV stuff's going through. I mean, there's data that says you can infuse the bank through intraosseous tunnels, things like that. Um, there's additional studies looking at uh, bank and tobermycin through wound backs and whatnot. Uh, we were part of that study as well, but I just want to kill everything. It just, I don't know. It, maybe it doesn't make a huge difference, but I sleep much better after I did that, whatever part of the day it was. It's a lot of magic in the air. All right, Dr. Brown, how frequently do you submit hip stems and should there be any changes to the coating of cemented stems to promote use? I'll cement them if they need it. It just sort of depends. I mean, I'll cement all my fractures typically, and then just kind of base it on bone quality interoperably. What percentage is that? You know, for, for primary hips, probably less than 5%, but I, I certainly do it. I don't know. Does there need to be a, I don't necessarily think, do we need to incentive? You know, because if you're getting paid more for it, people find a way to probably do it more or something. You know, I, maybe that's not wrong, but I don't know that necessarily waiting for a little cement to dry. Probably we need to change the reimbursement to encourage people to do that. But I do think in, in the right population, particularly fractures, it's probably the right thing to do. My bias. Well, and David, it probably equals out. You know, if you look at the number of maybe all poly tibias that are going in and ASCs, right? You know, for that older patient, it's probably similar. So it probably sort of equals itself out. Yeah. All right, guys. Favorite Spotify station in the OR? Yeah, you know, it's fun. I, I try and keep everyone happy. So I let the residents or the PA choose, but there's a lot of hip hop barbecue and a lot of 90s alternative. That's, uh, that's the PA's choice typically. But, you know, I do love country music as well, growing up in Iowa. So, but no one else in the Chicago <laughs> seems to. So not much country in ROR. A lot, of, a lot more hip hop barbecue. All right, Dr. Duncan, how do you balance your knee? Just 
let's say you've got a tight varus knee. Do you do a pie crusting? Do you do a subperiosteal strip? How do you balance your varus knee? So I've kind of swung from doing huge releases to minimal releases now. I'm okay leaving the, the distal femur part a little bit more varus to balance it and more a little bit more bony balancing. And when you see them back at a year, you don't see as much of a swing in terms of you go, I know I didn't leave them this loose medially. And uh, so now having done that, I see less soft tissue laxity than probably a year by doing more of the bony balance. Sure. Dr. Brown, same thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it really depends on the case, but again, I'm moving more towards sort of trying to more closely match their native anatomy. So as long as they haven't stretched out any ligaments, trying to balance more through bony cuts without, you know, sort of abandoning our traditional balancing strategies. So are you guys going to kinematic alignment? It kind of sounds like that from the answers, but do you seem to be migrating that way or are you still doing measured resection and kind of changing that around a little bit? For me, I'm doing more kinematic alignment where we'll vary the distal femur cut as well as the proximal tibia and then doing gap balancing to balance it after that. Sure. Yeah, fairly similar. I mean, I, I sort of just call it measured, sort of a more pure measured resection. Just, you know, as long as it's within sort of bounds and the patient doesn't have a, a pre-existing pathologic knee, you know, if their hip knee angles are within some reasonable bounds, uh, usually just restoring their native anatomy works fairly well again, but with these cases where, you know, a severe valgus or a severe varus or a blounce or post-traumatic or some of these other extreme anatomies, you know, again, sort of doing a combination of the techniques uh, seems to work best for me. But yes, definitely moving sure. in that direction. I think we saved the toughest question for last is for Dr. Brown. Best restaurant in Chicago? Oh gosh. Depends on what you're looking for. Uh, man, there's so, <laughs> there's so many good, so many good restaurants. That's why it's um, a tough question. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't go, I don't go to many like uh, multiple times. Um, Hospital cafeteria. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you know where I, I love going and it's probably not the best, but I do love going to a place by my house called Small Cheval, which they just serve the burgers from Small Cheval. And you don't have to wait as long. I love it on a summer day. You're sitting outside. They have great beer and great burgers and it's not fancy and it's not, you know, so that's my plug. We'd like to thank Dr. Brown and Dr. Duncan for joining us for this episode of The Augment. Don't forget to follow the YAG AUKUS group on Twitter. Follow us where you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate us with wait for it, a five-star modifier. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys soon. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.